it's funny, a lot of people will say when the market's hot, oh, gee, it must be a great time to be a developer. It's actually the opposite because while the prices might be moving up on what you're selling, they're moving up extraordinarily on what you're buying. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the show. Thank you for joining me. I trust you are well. I'm doing great. I have another interesting conversation coming up with a property developer who has come a long way and who mentored me on how to develop property. Before I get to that, here's what I've been up to lately. I've been continuing to work on the early planning phase of my new site. We have worked through a couple of layouts for the site and had to ditch my preferred scheme due to some issues with the site levels which affected the upper stories and meant that they were inside the res code required setbacks. So after trying to make it work, we had to abandon the design and go with a simpler layout. The layout we have settled on is more efficient and allows us more space for landscaping and a bit more freedom with the design. We're now getting some initial traffic advice on parking and turning circles and refining the size and types of properties to include. The property has now been leased and the tenant has just moved in, and they understand that it is a development project and the house will be demolished in the short term, and that suits them. We're still trying to finalise a funding solution with the bank, and it is proving challenging to convince them to fund the acquisition, even though we have a very strong application. I suspect that unless a deal fits tightly into a nice little box, the banks are looking for reasons not to fund it, but they don't tell you that at the start of the application process. Anyway, we will see where that leads, if anywhere. Now, normally I would remind you that if you're interested in learning how to develop property, to drop me an email, as I've partnered with the people who taught me how to develop, to help you realise your dream of becoming a developer. But today, I am going to go one better, and bring you a discussion with the guy who created the program. You can still email me if you want to know more about the program at justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and you might be inspired to do that after hearing this conversation. So, I first spoke with Troy Harris in 2012 about doing his property developing mentoring program. And after signing up and going through the program, I secured my first development site and eventually completed my first project, which, as you know, ended up being a 20 townhouse project that was way bigger than I ever intended. But I successfully got there in the end, and it was a terrific experience. And I couldn't have done it without Troy's help. When I started the podcast, Troy was on my early list of people I wanted to have on the show, so I'm excited to be finally bringing him to you. We ended up having quite a long chat as we meandered down memory lane and cover how Troy started off doing a couple of renovations before starting his development career in Ballarat in regional Victoria. Since then, Troy has completed a stack of projects and set up a program to help wannabe developers. I have broken this conversation up into two parts. So in part one, we cover how Troy went from owning a retail shop to developing, the biggest obstacles he has had to overcome, and what he has learnt along the way. Keep an ear out for Troy talking about what holds people back from taking on developing. I started off by asking Troy what he would eat until he was sick. Probably lamb roast, that would be the number one. The lamb roast and the veggies, I could just, yeah. We, we uh, tend to do it, with the, particularly with the kids. We uh, make sure we 
um, buy way more than we could possibly eat in one meal, and we make our own own version of souvlakis the next night. Oh, very good. Just uh, cut it up, cook it up um, with some wraps and some sauces and some veggies. And um, I'm sure the Greeks wouldn't agree with our version of it, but uh, the kids are very happy with it. And, um, yeah, very much enjoy the lamb roast. Oh, you're the first person that's come up with a, a roast of some description that's reasonably healthy. Uh, well, it can be. Yeah. <laughs> Not with the duck fat on the roast potatoes. No, no, generally, generally pretty healthy in regards to that. We, we have, generally have a pretty good diet when the kids are here, at least, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now... You and I have somewhat of a history, being you were the guy that mentored me to become a property developer, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, And we've come full circle, being that I first heard of you on a property podcast, which then prompted me to realize that developing was what I wanted to do, and we'll also get to that later. But if you could give us a bit of a background about how you got into developing, because you've got a bit of an interesting pathway into it. Uh, look, it does go back quite quite a while, and it is overcoming a lot of um, mental hurdles, which I think uh, uh, most people have the, the same issues. My um, my background is certainly not of trade or anything to do with the building industry. I was probably lucky to uh, stumble across a friend and, and who became a mentor who um, saw something in me that I probably didn't see uh, and helped me to, to get started. And it started with, um, like, I suppose, a lot of people with a, a buy reno sell. Um, which was a very, very old uh, homestead in North Blackburn in Victoria. And if anyone knows the area, would be very surprised to hear about a, a homestead there because it obviously dates back a long time before it was uh, surrounded by, by uh, residential homes. Um, did very well out of that one. Um, thought I knew everything I had to know and uh, made a small loss on the next one, which was a, a slight replica except for a number of mistakes. From there, I sort of uh, realised that renovating wasn't for me. I I felt I spent too much time actually on-site, even though I wasn't doing all the work. Uh, I spent a lot of time there coordinating the plumbers and the electricians and all the the, the work that I couldn't do myself and thought that um, there must be a better way of doing this. Not that there's anything wrong with renovating. I know a lot of people are very successful renovating. It just wasn't quite for me. Um, From there, I knew some people doing some small developments, and decided that was the way forward for me, but it sounded a whole lot more scary than uh, than doing a, a buy reno sell. All this you know, knocking things over and all the rest of it at the time sounded very very scary. So I'd had myself convinced I was going to buy one, but, in, but there was some part of me that had me convinced that I wasn't going to, or made excuses why I didn't. And um, over the you know, probably decades since then, I've seen a lot of people have come up with the same or their own versions of those excuses. Um, that while they're outwardly gung-ho and racing towards getting started there's there's a big anchor dragging along behind them that that is self-imposed um from there um again another um another person another mentor helped me get started up in ballarat which was from memory was a little corner block for about one hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars in a suburb of ballarat which i thought that was probably safe enough i couldn't do too much damage um if i didn't know what i was doing there for 133 grand, I got a house on a corner with a backyard. I didn't have to knock the house over. I had to do a bit of a reno, and I knew I could do that. And um, just built a little single-level three-bedder on the back or on the side, and um, that was that was all fine. And we made a, a small profit, and that was my uh, that was my start in property developing. I think you were pretty hands-on there, weren't you? I seem to recall a story where you were camping out overnight in the living room to 
save money and save time from travelling? Yes, well, Ballarat being probably the best part of two hours away from home, what I was generally doing would be I'd head off early one morning with a view to you know, staying two days and come back the, the next night and get as much done as I could in a couple of days. Had to, you know, started a young family, or it was about to at that stage. And yes, it was, it was like camping out. Well, it was uh, inside the house. The house was an older house, which was originally transported there from another location. And uh, while doing the renovation, I noticed actually there was no insulation in it whatsoever. And for those who know Ballarat, it is very, very cold, particularly in winter. So we had the old Canara that was the only heating in the house. So I used to uh, load up on, on wood. And, and basically, while during the day, I'd do my, my development work and looking for another site by this stage. Um, and then of the evening, I'd be doing the renovations, like the painting and so forth. So I'd be painting away until my eyes got a little bit droopy and I wasn't painting straight anymore and it was time to go to bed so I'd load up the little canara with as much wood as I possibly could and I'd, I'd drag the mattress up there and I'd, I'd drag that out um, from hiding from the renovations and put that in the lounge room in front of the fire and put as much wood on as I possibly could and then I'd wake up about four o'clock in the morning absolutely freezing there's just a little bit of an ember flood, uh, showing so I'd, I'd just stack it full of wood again and, and warm up enough to get through the second half of my sleep before I could get going the second day and, and head down to McDonald's and get myself a coffee and uh, some breakfast before starting my day and so do you sell both of those properties so there's one on the back yes that's right at the front yeah um all the all the we end up doing five projects in ballarat all up um and yeah, it sold them all didn't, didn't keep any of those um didn't uh, for uh, probably a couple of reasons it wasn't at the time there wasn't a, a, a lot of growth prospects there so if you're holding on to something it's probably not going to be worth a whole lot more in any you know immediate period of time plus also uh, developing being a uh, an enterprise where you do need a fair bit of cash the it's a it's a lot easier certainly in regards to the banks to be able to cash out even though you're paying uh, tax on your profits to be able to cash that out to use that cash moving forward into your next project and buying more and you know doing one little corner block um was not going to you know provide me an income um so i needed to do bigger sites more sites to be able to you know um, put food on the table for my family, so I um, sort of needed to cash out on those and, and keep building and, and growing. So you did five in Ballarat, five projects, yep. all the similar type? No, that's um, that was a smaller one. The next one, uh, I kept an old weatherboard and put three on the back. The one after that was uh, kept an old, lovely little old miner's cottage, a tiniest little house you come across. Actually, when we were selling that um, after we'd built um but there was quite a lot of interest in property at the time we had an open we actually had to it was almost like a nightclub had to wait for people to leave before they could come in <laughs> the house was that small it only fit in about 12 people at a time um and up and then uh, from there a couple of other projects where you keep the house and build i think build five on the, on the next ones so while they're you know fairly sizable at Ballarat being a, a smaller entry point, um, some of these properties were selling for you know under two hundred thousand. The new two bedrooms for under a couple hundred thousand, and back then the the federal and the state government were very kind to first home buyers at the end of the GFC. And um, I sold one property for one hundred ninety thousand to a young lady, first home buyer, who got thirty six and a half thousand dollars in grants. So that's a nice kickstart for a first home buyer. That's a, quite a quite a good deposit. And I recall you saying somewhere that your first project was profitable, which gave you the um, uh, incentive or encouraged you to then keep going. You thought, yes, I can do this. But your second one 
was it profitable? Is that correct? That, that was with the renovations. With the before renos. that was before I started developing. So yeah, made a made a very good profit on the first uh, combination of a, a number of things. Um, some I was, I was pretty pleased at the, the effort I put in, um, and also a little bit of luck. I found a really good buyer who was just the perfect property for them. So I sold it for a bit more than I was expecting to. That's a, that's a nice win. We we take the wins um, when we have them, but I guess that did give me a little bit of overconfidence and I didn't put anywhere near as much research into the second one and um, that which was just again a, a, an older weatherboard a renov- renovation and sell um, had a bit of problems and couldn't find the the, the perfect buyer that would pay the, the good price end up making a small loss of I think probably a, well, it was about 10 or 12 thousand so fortunately um, not anything too dramatic and and only a small part of what i'd made on the previous one but it was a, a real kick in the pants um not so much financially but, but for confidence and that that's where i had a period of time where um i, I did struggle um with the, the the confidence to to move forward particularly going into something that's you know potentially perceived as more complicated and more difficult in the developing so to take a little while tell us a little bit more about that what, what were the lessons that you learned what were the hurdles that you had to overcome be that mental to then give you the ability to take on developing because there's a bit of pretty big step going from a yeah, small loss making reno project to then taking on a property development project even if it's only a duplex yeah look it certainly was look, there's lessons of i guess the on the property side and there's also lessons of the mindset uh, on the property was I just didn't do enough research. I figured that because I similar properties, although they were quite different, um, they were just a, a small three bedroom home. But you know, one was a um, was a weatherboard that had been on a, a a block that had been cut up and um, property been put on the back sometime before that. Compared to a, almost like a heritage old, a, a very unique. Uh, property, which when we found the right buyer who paid you know a, a very good price for it, whereas the other one there was a, a lot more of them around. It wasn't unique. Um, the although the suburbs are only a couple of suburbs apart uh, in Donvale, the the price of a property can be a little bit hard to read if you don't uh, read the numbers very well. Put a lot of research in it, which I didn't do. Uh, it's a very much a. a a suburb of opposites. It's almost like you, you don't... I looked at the suburb overall where you needed to look at the pockets. Um, in Donvale, there's some, uh, some newer homes on much larger blocks. It's, it's, it's bordering on rural, um, and it's also got some older homes which aren't worth nearly as much. But then you put a median price in, and you sort of split the two. And because I was working on the lower end, I, I had a, a higher... Uh, value. I thought I thought I got it at a pretty good price when in reality I didn't, and I thought I could add value to it, whereas um, I couldn't add as much value as I thought I could. And that's where and basically what I expected to get for it in the end was well short of um, what I ended up getting, and that was fair enough because that's what the market was. It was it wasn't the market that was wrong; it was me, um, as is always the case. <laughs> um, yeah, so we we can't argue with the market because the market's always right regardless of whether it is or isn't. So that was um, on the property side of things, um, but then sort of that knocks your confidence around a little bit too. So um, also in, a, in between all that was a roundabout with the, with the GFC, and I thought, well, um, in the meantime, I'll do a little bit of uh, playing with some shares, and my timing was pretty poor on that, and I lost some money with shares. So I've gone from you know, a loss and a loss, which takes, takes a, um, a bit out of your confidence. So I guess that's why, you know, when I did start, it was at the, the very lowest 
cheapest, easiest end. And that was, um, like, as I've spoken with you many times in the past about mindset, I needed something that, like that to get started. And it, it did change quite significantly and very quickly because, um, I, as I said, I had a mentor who was helping me who was also in the Ballarat market at the time. And I remember we'd start... A, and we started down the process. We got plans. We got plans into council. And I rang him up one day and said, look, I'm a little bit concerned. Can you give me a hand? He said, well, what's the matter? He said, oh, I think I'm missing something. So okay. Well, so we, we caught up. And he said, okay, well, what have you done? What do you think you're missing? I said, well, I'm not really sure. He said, okay, what have you done? So I went through and I've done this, I've done that. and done that. He said, yeah, that's it. I go, what do you mean? There's got to be more to it than that. He said, no, that's it. Really? You sure? Yep, that's it. And it was. And from that moment, I'm going, okay, well, i just got to replicate this. The same process. Make sure I don't make the mistakes of earlier where I get a little bit ahead of myself. And um, if I do my, my really detailed research and do enough of that and do and follow the process and tick all the boxes that need to be ticked, i just got to do it again and again. And so but what was the leap that you were able to make from going from a from renovation to developing why did you decide that, that you were going to shift strategies um i wanted I, I i mean i needed that was my income um i didn't have a job outside of that i'd um prior to that i'd had a, a business a, a toy shop um and i'd sold that so that was my that was my form of income so i, I needed to do something otherwise i'd go back and have to get a job and i was never really good at a job um i didn't want to go back to do that so i had to do something um, so um, started with the renovations, which seemed to work fairly well, but I, I felt that the amount of time I spent in doing these renovations for the return, I wasn't going to be able to build and increase my business being that hands-on to um, have a, you know, a, a decent um, decent enough income based on that. Now, that's not necessarily the case. I know plenty of people who do make a very, very good income doing exactly that, but I didn't feel that was for me. Um, so I had to do something different and the, the next logical step that I saw at the time was to move into developing and I'd known a number of people who had done exactly that, start off as renovations and then move into developing, particularly if you're doing a, a reno and develop. So you're covering both bases? Oh, look, a, a little bit and it's, it, it's, it felt safer. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is, and I've seen, unfortunately, other people fall over with a, um, a, a Renault developed that they haven't, you know, haven't done properly and they've still managed to lose money. Um, but for me, that was the logical step. And you know, since I've discovered, looking back for me, and I've seen it in many other people, it's about what you're looking at at the time you're ready to take that step, to take that action, is what you'll go forward with because i think most people who are going down the the wealth creation path or particularly the ones who are looking to do something um that can uh, eliminate their their need to have a job they've all got those skills and qualities to be successful at virtually anything they do and all they need is a vehicle and you know there's a lot of things out there that you know i know people are successful running businesses i know people successful in shares renovations developing all those sort of things and i reckon if they had have decided to go down a different path they would have been successful as that i know people have been very successful doing things like amway multi-level marketing have done very very well and those people would be great at developing or running, you know, shares or anything like that. And I think a lot of it is just when mentally you click that this is, nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to do whatever I need to do and be successful at it. Whatever you happen to be looking at at the time is what you'll go ahead and you'll be successful at. And that was the same for me. And I've seen a lot of people do exactly the same thing in a, a variety of different fields. 
And so what was it that attracted you to developing? What do you think it gives back to you or what do you get out of it? Oh, it's a very flexible um, a way of um, creating wealth, I mean, whether it be as still as an employee or a business owner, um, or you know, particularly for myself, where you know, this is my form of income, um, and having young kids, that um, I'm lucky that the, the flexibility allows me to um, <clears throat> to be able to do things with them, and whether that and other people in, in other circumstances, it might be with their partner, they might have a, an interest in, in sport or something like that. They give a lot of flexibility. Like, sure, there's plenty of times I've got to, you know, have meetings with draftees and banks and all that, but generally you're not locked in to have to be there um, at a, any given time or something like that. You just make an appointment the time that suits you. Like, generally most people, as I did when you asked me to come on this podcast, I said, I'm pretty good during, during school hours. Um, you know, with a bit of notice, I'm, I'm 99% sure during school hours. So, you know, unless I get a school, you know, call from the school that, you know, someone's fallen over and hurt themselves, I'm generally pretty good. Um, and that's where I make most of my appointments so that I'm, I'm free to do what I need to do with the, with the kids. And that's, that's my priority. Whereas someone else, if it's a, if it's a sport, then they might need training in the afternoon, then, hey, I'm, a, I'm available in the mornings. With work, um, you know, people can make phone calls and emails at lunchtime, before work, after work. I used to, um, particularly um, when it, during busy periods, um, get the kids off the bed. And they'd, you know, being young, they'd go off to bed reasonably early. And then I'd you know, jump on the computer and reply to five emails because it doesn't matter whether I send them at six o'clock at night or midnight. Um, your person's going to read them when they come into work the next day, whether that be the bank or the draft or the council or whatever the case may be. So the flexibility um, is the, the great benefit to me. Yeah, I enjoy that as well. I mean, I've gone off to do reading with the kids. My kids are at primary school. You can go and sit there and do half an hour of reading with them or help out when they go to swimming, just little things like that that are a little bit difficult if you're working full-time in the city or somewhere else. So, yeah, that definitely is a a great benefit of being self-employed. Oh, look, it's fantastic. I I do exactly the same thing. I I love it. And I I feel very, very fortunate to be able to be be in a position to be able to do that, Um, whereas I know there's a lot of other people who'd love to do that, but they just can't because, you know, the boss isn't going to let you have every Monday morning off to go and go to swimming lessons or to go into the school and read or something like that. Um, and particularly the more fl- you know flexible things where you need to you know, come and go and different things like that. So um, having a full time work is you know doesn't allow you to do that. So you said you worked in retail. You had a toy store. Um, what about that that wasn't inspiring to you? What made you look elsewhere for something to do with your life? Oh, it was probably a couple of main things. One, it didn't make any money. <laughs> um, so I was, I was, that's always motivating. <laughs> so I was, I was kind of a volunteer, um, but also is in direct contrast to what we're just talking about. Uh, retail has retail hours, and I had to be there at nine o'clock to open up. I had to be there till five o'clock to close down. And you know, while you do it, you know, depending on your business, you do have some staff and things like that. You're still very restricted, and particularly if you know the person who's opening up tomorrow rings in at quarter to nine and says, oh, "I'm sick. I'm not coming in." You had to drop everything and, and do that. And then, you know, I, I had the shop before I had children, which they qu- kind of quite haven't realised that you know Dad used to own a toy shop. Um, they, 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 Probably best quite, they don't know that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do understand, but they haven't quite clicked at what they've missed out on. But, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, but you know, I didn't have children then. But you know, what if I was on the way to school? 
taken to the school and then you get the phone call, what do I do? I've got to take them to the school, which means I open late and miss customers and get in trouble with the center management and all the rest of it. So th- those are the, ultimately the two things. So many business lessons which have helped me, um, particularly running a business that wasn't successful. You learn how to um, you know, be, be very clever um, to you know sort of mix and match things and uh, make sure you get your bills paid even when there is you know, not so much money coming in and things like that. Um, but yeah, it wasn't making any money and it was taking a whole lot of time to not make that money. So it's a time to, to move on. And that in itself was a, a, a real mental struggle. I'm a, I'm a great believer. I'm not, not a religious person. I'm a believer that you, that you get what you deserve in life. And I worked really, really hard for a few years, really long hours. And you hear of so many businesses that take a few years before they finally click and then start start being profitable. And, and that was my fear that I was walking away just before it was becoming profitable. But and even with the benefit of hindsight, it was not going to be. So you just mentioned a couple of lessons that you learned from from the, the toy store not going particularly well, what, paying bills on time. What were some of the other ones? Oh, just a, a, a management of time. Um, which sort of comes in as we were talking about, sort of even though we've got the flexibility, still to manage it. That even though you know I'm pretty well available between school hours, I sort of make sure that I, I do do everything that I need to do and make sure things get done on time. Because um, also a belief that I'm the one that sets the the standard for the time frame between those people I deal with. If a drafty sends me an email and I take a week to get back to him and I expect him to reply to me an hour later, that's that's unrealistic. Um, I set I set the standard, and I don't think anyone ever exceeds that standard that I set. However, the lower I, I set it, the lower they go. The longer they take to get back to me, um, particularly you know those people, it's not in their best interest to get things back. You know, they're always you know, people are always busy and always looking to put things off. But if I'm constantly coming back to them straight away, then I think they feel a little bit of um, obligation to get back to me sooner rather than later. Um, I always like don't like to be the guy that's holding something up. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I'm, you know, a great view that, you know, if a draftee's going to send me something, say, look, you know, they're going to send it to me, I say, right, Owen, I get on it straight away and get, you know, if they're asking me a couple of questions about a design or, or something like that, or if the bank is asking me a couple of questions about the loan because I've, you know, forgotten to ask it earlier, I just try to get back to them as soon as possible and, and, and keep that moving because time's always the, uh, the concern that, you know, nobody's as concerned about your time as you are. I'm sure you know that very well. I do. No one uh, has a, as much love for your project as you do. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> well, let's jump back to Ballarat. Yep. So you've done, you're progressively getting bigger. What did you learn along the way? What, are the, what were the lessons you were learning from project to project that kept you going? Um, gee, there was just a whole lot. It's, just, it's all sort of flooding back to mind now. Um yeah, probably still making mistakes in that once I had that conversation we spoke about earlier that there wasn't anything that I was missing, I actually was doing all there was. Um, and particularly it's up at the time in Ballarat, that it was pretty cheap to buy. Like, you know, was, well, the first one was a cheap one, 133000 The second one I bought, I think, was 180. It was either 180, 190. Uh, and next one was 205. And we're putting, you know, three and four units onto these. Plus the, the houses themselves are worth nearly as much as what we're paying for them without the land attached to them. So it was fairly easy to, to move into that. 
And the banks were being nice then, and they'll, you know, I'd just roll it to my bank, who I'd had a pretty good relationship with for for a number of years. And I've bought another one. Here's the things, and you know, here's the numbers and valuations, everything. And they they go, yeah, no worries, Troy. Here's eighty percent, no problem. Um, until I got to the fourth one, and the bank said no. He said, you can't service it. I said, I oh, know, I haven't been able to service any of them. <laughs> well, this is a concern now, Troy. I'm going, okay. So I had to do, do a bit of scrounging around because, unfortunately, this one I it was a pretty good buy, but the vendor had a, some complications and needed a very short settlement. So I bought this on a 30-day settlement, and that's the one that the bank said no to, of course. So I had to scramble around to get the, the funds to settle that one. Fortunately, it was only... Uh, it was about 190000 that one. So it wasn't like it's, you know, buying in Melbourne where you're paying multiples of that. Might have been a little bit harder to find the cash to, to settle that one. Um, but that was also before we started finishing them. So I'm buying the fourth one before I finished the first one. So in hindsight, I've probably got a little bit ahead of myself. And But, you know, the the properties were there. The, the Each of the projects were profitable. I had no doubt around that. So it was just a matter of moving forward. And there was nothing ever that was um, high risk. Because like I said, even if... You know, with the banks, surprisingly, um, saying no at the time. Not surprisingly now, but it was at the time. Um, it wasn't an enormous hurdle to, to overcome to be able to find a couple hundred thousand dollars. There's plenty of money out there if you've got a project to, to show people. Uh, plenty of people who are interested in becoming a developer um, who really wants to but is scared out of their pants of doing it would, but would be happy to put some money in with someone who knows what they're doing um, and share the profit that way rather than you know, particularly nowadays where you're sticking the money in the bank and getting what is it about 2.8% I think you can get on a term deposit now um, so you know as a developer I'm borrowing from the bank at you know twice that or, you know there's plenty of people around so you've done five projects in Ballarat over what sort of time period good question it was um Probably over about three years, because as I said, the, like the, we'd bought the fourth one before we finished the first one. Uh, the, the the fifth one was a little bit later on. That was as a, as a joint venture with someone who wanted to get started. Um, asked me to come in on the deal as I, I guess as a, a more of an advisor than actually doing all the work. So um, that was and that was the, the final thing for me. As much as it, as I wasn't being the only one doing that I was sort of less involved and, and the trips to Ballarat got a little bit harder yeah I can imagine <laughs> well you, that's quite a decent acceleration for a man who's just getting started in property developing uh, yeah look and there's a number of things for that I was holding myself back through my own self-inflicted fears and so forth but um, at the time it, it, once I worked out I, I knew what I was doing and it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people listening who haven't done one before think it's a lot more than what it is um, in you know when I used to do some of the training there was I used to talk about the four pillars and um, without going into that now there was four key things that you needed to get right and there's another thousand things you could probably get wrong and <laughs> you still I make profit still remember those four pillars Troy <laughs> I might have stolen the idea from uh, from when I was over in uh, Kokoda on the um, the uh, memorial there, but um, oh, they, they stuck up. They still I yeah. still uh, use them as a foundation of my thinking. Oh, it is, and it's just just some really key points that you need to um, make sure you get absolutely right, and you get everything else wrong. People worry too much about you know you know whether they should have a a, a bath 
uh, a shower over bath or just a shower or a bath and a shower and you know where the toilet needs to go the color of the tiles and um you know do i render it or do i you know all, all the rest of the stuff it really you're talking about questions that might end up making a thousand dollars difference on a million dollar project but the, the four key things about buying well knowing what you're going to do with it what the, and particularly what the prices are going to be for your build and your sales prices if you get those right you can stuff everything else up and still make good money and people just got the focus. Some people just got the focus in the wrong areas. So by now you've got a something of a process in place. I'm guessing. Yeah, it was it was ongoing, and, and, and to this day still is. It's um, every time you do something, you, you you learn a little bit about it. Either that's <clears throat> excuse me, the, the best way of doing it, or there's a slightly better way, or that you need to do something a little bit different in a different slightly different type a different area and you know as you go along you build up a, a team of people and you know some stay with you for a long time and and some let you down at the first call and some let you down a little bit later on it's it's always learning if you stop learning it's going to be a bit of a concern yeah, well, we'll come back to team members <laughs> so you're in ballarat when when do you shift to melbourne well, it's funny. At one stage, yeah, we almost shifted to Ballarat <laughs> to, to give up with the commuting with a view that we'd keep going. And then um, just around at the same time, started thinking about doing some developing in Melbourne and then realised, oh, I'm going to move to Ballarat and then commute back to Melbourne to develop. That's not very wise. So decided to, um, to start uh, back in Melbourne, Look, obviously with the, the, the time. Um, and also with the, with the family, like the, the days I could go to Ballarat was becoming... Um, affected by because now you know, with a growing family going off to kinder and things like that you set around times that, that you don't have control over up until then I had control over all the time frames but as much as um, as a self-employed property developer you get to choose when and where you don't get to choose the rest of the world and you know, as you know, the kids have this thing on at this certain time, and you sort of, if you want to be there, you need to work around that. So, the two hours up and back to Ballarat was getting, it was the, the trip seemed to get longer every time. I remember I had to drive up there once to to sign a document, <clears throat> and then drive back, and, and I was up there and just gone. I need to find something else to do to justify being here. So I went out for lunch or something, but um, and it just it just got a little bit harder, and um, and also the view of taking all that knowledge and um, and bringing all that forward into Melbourne, and you know, I could buy one just around the corner. You know, I was looking around that the the area that I lived in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne was pretty good for developing. So why am I travelling all this way? Yeah, I think you once mentioned around the cost of construction doesn't vary a huge amount across. The state? No, it doesn't. Yes, it'll be a little bit more in a big city, but say compared to Ballarat to Melbourne, not a massive change from a lower socioeconomic area, for example, to an affluent area. The construction the, the only variation different. No, the only variation in the construction really is is the level of inclusions. Whereas Ballarat, we were just working on being the, the, the cheapest new properties available, particularly with the, the, the grants being offered. Um, so we had a, a very large first home buyer um, uh, population there that were likely to be buyers. We sold mostly to first home buyers, very few to investors. Um, and that's for some of these young kids in their early 20s, the, to get a new home, even though it's a, a small unit with just the base, basic everything, what a great start. We're rather than you know, most people, their first home was an old rundown old thing, way out whoop whoop, they had to you know, sit on boxes and things like that. These kids you know, end up you know, 15, 20% deposit thanks to the governments, um, didn't need a lot of cash, you know, just needed a job and they could buy a brand new home. That's, that's pretty handy. 
Very good. And so what was the first project in Melbourne? I was in Mitcham, um, which was a really old, run-down old weatherboard, which is pretty well falling apart, um, covered with trees. It had been on the market for quite some time, and there was just trees everywhere, and obviously it scared everybody off. But when we got in there, there was only one tree of any real concern, um, and once we um, got advice that we'd be able to get rid of that, then it became a clear sight. Um, and it was a tightish three-unit site, but um, done a fair bit of work on looking at some comparable sites and what you know designs and shapes and sizes and everything could get in there. And um, we let ourselves a draftee that we had trust in, and went to him before we went unconditional on the on the purchase to say um, we need to get three on here based on our numbers, and we expect them to look like this. Can you get them on? Because we need to know before we buy it. He came back with uh, confidence that he could. Um, so we went ahead and, and we bought it. And so what concerns did you have moving areas? It's a pretty big shift in ge- geographic area. Yeah, look, it sure is. And it was certainly a lot dearer. Now, I'm trying to remember what we paid for that. But it was certainly more than double what I was paying up in Ballarat for, for a smaller site. And this was also the first one to knock over. Uh, and completely rebuild with the, the three units on there. So it was, it was quite different. The, the advantages were it's close to home. Um, the, the profit per unit was obviously higher. Um, but the thing is, we had to start a whole new team. Mm-hmm. Couldn't use any of the, the drafties and the builders and things like that. We, I managed to keep hold of my um, um, my legal advisor and the conveyancer, which I still use to this day, even though they're in Ballarat. They've uh, been fantastic. and We've developed a way that um, we can do everything that we need to do by email, by phone, and by express post, um, which is great. But pretty well everyone else, we had to had to change over. Um, so we had to go and you know do that, go through the process of finding finding a drafty, finding a builder, and so forth, which is a little bit time consuming. But once you've um, got them. Um, it's, it's a lot easier because, well, some you'll keep for your next project, some you'll be disappointed by and move on, but you'll, you'll know why. And while you're doing that project and being disappointed by that particular team um, or team member, you, you can be looking for others as well, particularly yeah. around drafties and builders. You, you, you're keeping an eye, as you're keeping your eye out on the, on the local market, you're coming across those whether you like it or not. Yeah, I think that's a constant evolutionary process when you're a developer is whittling away at the team to try and get those A-grade players that you want to continue working with. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, different people are in different circumstances in their life. I've had um, team members have been really good for a number of projects and then all of a sudden just change out of nowhere um, and become completely different. And then it's you know time to move on and, and find another one who hopefully will, will replace them. And so what... You, what process or what steps did you go through to then try and find those team members? So you drafted your builder. What were you going through? Were you just looking up people in the was it Yellow Pages back then, or was Google around by this stage? <laughs> I think Google was around <laughs> by then. I'm pretty sure I might have even had a mobile phone that uh, would fit in my pocket. But um, different team members needed. There's a different different strategy. For, for example, with a, with a drafty. Um, I'm after a draft to you who can really add value because there's no point getting a cheap draft to you, puts a two units on a three unit site because that's going to cost you a fortune. Um, for me, the draft is between the cheaper one and the dearer one, it's, you're talking maybe $10,000 across a project, whereas they can add or subtract fifty or $100,000. So the money wasn't an issue. 
for me it was how, how good they were about in that area that they could show me that they could do something similar to what I was doing that they didn't have the ego that they wanted to make it all pretty but not profitable which is for their best interest because they want to show potential clients how, how wonderful this is they don't show a balance sheet to a potential client they'll, they'll show a pretty picture um, for me I'm not too fussed what it looks like as long as what I'm building is able to be sold for the price that I uh, expect to get to make the expected profit that's that's all the intent for me so drafties don't always uh, probably the ones that are a little, little bit more architectural than draftsmen um, so for me it's it's not so much price it's the, the ability and attitude and also around time frame we don't want this dragging on it takes long enough at council as it is we don't want it taking extra time to get into council so for me was attitude and ability uh, followed by time frame and the price was further down the track when it comes to something like a builder price comes into it of course because you're not talking 10,000 you might be talking 100,000 and if you're doing a project that might be making say a a three unit site might make $150,000 profit but then you come up and your builder is $100,000 dearer than you expect all of a sudden you're only making 50 and if the, if the price moves on the, on, the, on the properties by, say, 10000 a unit, you're down to twenty. You don't want to be doing a development for $20,000. So for, for a builder, you're obviously looking at quality. You're also looking at time frame because the longer they hold it forth, take, holding up the, 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 the process, the, um, the, the more it costs you. Um, and also, the, you know, if you're waiting to, to get to the end to sell, one or more of them, the longer it takes for that as well. So there's a lot of costs involved. But you also want, a, a, obviously, a quality of builder, the, the quality of finish. You do have all the insurances for the main concerns, the structural and all the rest of it. But at the same time, there's different qualities of finish. And if you're selling on completion, having a, a good quality home stands out and gets you the premium price at a, and also a good quick sale, whereas if the quality is poor, you're probably going to have to take some the price off because there's there's always going to be others around and if you're a buyer looking through yours which isn't all that good a quality the one down the road to really good quality it's a no-brainer what they're going to buy and unless you discount it to make it attractive if you take if you're trying to sell the bmw equivalent home and you've dished up a hyundai apologies to hyundai drivers <laughs> um you have to drop to a hyundai price because they don't sell for the same price as the bmw and that's that's pretty logical yeah one of my guests had a really good suggestion in terms of how you can track down the good consultants and people in the area. And that's, you go to the agents, real estate agents tend to know all the people that sell off the plan, have a good idea around who the decent builders are. Um, They'll generally know who the draftees or architects who have an understanding of the area is. Uh, And same for town planners. So if you can go and talk to them yep oh and the builders so builders usually can give you t- leads on who the good designers are certainly can so you sort of start working around that sort of circle and if you get common names coming up it's yeah really usually worth going to talk to i think that's the key to have the common names because you know you, you ask you know a builder you know sort of um who's a good draftee his best mate might be the draftee and he might be a crap draft he might even use him himself um, with, with some of the builders it's sometimes a lot easier to see because you can actually just drive around the neighbourhood and you'll see work under construction and, and even just things like just even if they've got to the point of nearing completion we can see the quality I think just sort of the quality of the people working on the site you know if they're all driving you know battered up utes and they're all you know every time you drive past they're you know having a beer and that sort of stuff then maybe not maybe not the best builder you 
Um, but if it's, if it's a nice, clean site and everyone seems to, you know, know what they're doing and just get along and doing their job, well, you know, I'm a great believer in business that, you know, you're never any, the business is never better than the quality of the person running it, um, although it can deteriorate from there. And, you know, I've, I've found that people who run businesses, not just in this industry, that, um, that they set a standard and if they employ someone who doesn't fit their quality of person, they don't last very long and they're moved on. Whereas you find that good businesses have a lot of good quality people, um, but you know there's always the the um, the, the break of the, that rule, the, the variation of that. So um, yeah, look at, again, just down and research the, the the times that I've let myself down is I haven't done the research as well. We did a lot of research on the builders, went and spoke to them. You know, one you need, you want to find a builder who's building the type of property that you want. If you're building single-level units, you don't want someone who's, who's building apartments. That's not what they specialise in. And, and in reverse, if you wanted to replicate feature um, older-style homes, if that happens to be something that's the, the right thing in that area, you don't want someone who's, who focuses on building the, the big square blocks, the very modern type things. So that, maybe that's not what they do. Um, and then, of course, once you've you know sort of short-listed those, you need to work out some of the prices. Um, sometimes if you find some... Uh, developments that are similar to what you're looking at that's nearing completion go and have a chat with the builder there's a builder's phone number on a, on a board out the front of every site so you ring them up and well you know builders do get a lot of tire kickers and probably don't have a lot of time for it. if you're saying i'm looking to do something just like your what you're building i'm looking for a builder there's a fair chance they're going to you know listen to you you'll probably be able to get a bit of an idea you know so just you know roughly what what sort of price for this, what what price per square or what price per unit for these? And you get so get a bit of an idea, and I've come across some really good builders, but their prices just way out, you know, well beyond what I know I can get it built for, and way beyond what can make a job profitable. So it's like, hey, well done on your work, but I'm sorry, that's not not for me. And so back to your three unit development. Yep, all worked out. Yeah, well, fine. Actually, uh, decided that was the. Th- Oh, not the first one. The first one, I was entirely the real estate agent for myself, um, having to deal with a whole lot of tire kickers. And, um, and I thought I got some strange questions from some of, some of the younger people up in Ballarat, not having much of an idea of asking questions about off the plan and things like that. I got some extraordinary questions, you know, like it'd be, be off the, selling off the plan, we'd have an ad on the realestate.com.au with an artist impression and people would turn up to a vacant site and wondering why they haven't been built. Um, I had uh, a Chinese gentleman who was very interested in his Feng Shui who asked if Unit 2 could be turned at 90 degrees. Um, I did explain to him that wasn't possible. As as much as I'd like to help him out, I just couldn't turn the the, the unit around 90 degrees to face a different direction. Um, And even one stage, because we had the temp fence up the front, I got an anonymous letter shoved in the um, the wire, just sort of screwed up and shoved in the wire, telling us how terrible we were for knocking down a lovely old home. The old home was knocking itself down. Um, so, yeah, some interesting interesting things there. So you sold them all yourself? Yep, sold all three ourselves. We had um, two sold um, pretty easy. It was a, um, all, all young people, all first home buyers. Um, there was an Indian couple who um, I think the week that, we went unconditional on that was the week they became Australian citizens. So it's a very great uh, week for them. They were, they were thrilled. 
um, a, a lovely young lady bought the Unit 3 and um, had a young couple who, um, when negotiating over Unit 2, were more interested in arguing with one another than working out a price. So that was, again, a, a bit of a story. I think uh, he was putting up most of the money and she was putting up most of the objections. And um, it was, yeah, that was a bit interesting. But yeah, all, all sold. So I saved a few dollars, but spent a lot of time and a lot of, a lot of lost sleep over just the, the stresses of, of dealing with some of these people. And so you moved on. What was the next project? Um, the next couple of projects? Probably probably more consistently, sort of a slightly larger, sort of the next one was a four-unit site. Uh, very similar, old home, falling over, knocked it over, put four on. Um, from then on, I've only done one which uh, kept uh, an existing property, which was one that um, was in the API magazine. They wanted to run a, a little series, and we did about eight eight month series just month by month where we're up to over the over the process of um keeping the existing and had to knock off the back part of one to to fit two in the backyard whereas it was fairly common to just keep a house put one in the backyard which would have um, worked and made a very small profit or knocking over the house and putting three on it um, by removing the extension on the back and doing a little bit of reconfiguration internally, we were able to keep two single levels on the back, which ended end up making it a, a pretty good a pretty good project. That one. And so you've you've sort of consistently got bigger from there. I think you're doing four or five unit sites. Then you got up to seven or eight. Yes, um, and look, it's it's not. That it was particularly designed that way. As as you go on, you again feeling a little bit more confident. Um, some people are, um, I know that are happy just doing dual locks and doing lots of them. They might have two or three on the go at a time, and so that if that's the case, every you know nine, twelve months, something like that, they roll out a profit, and that's that's what they do. That's replace their income. They might be making you know a hundred, two hundred thousand a year just by doing that, by having two or three rotating, four maybe. And if that's what they want to do, that's fantastic because it works for them. Uh, other people might be doing the occasional very large one, um, and there could be a, a mix and match. I speak a lot um, through the, the training that we've done about finding your perfect site, working at something that really works for you, that fits in with your location. That you, you know, for those who don't want to drive to Ballarat, don't drive to Ballarat. Don't, don't try because otherwise you're just going to convince yourself not to. You're going to spend a lot of time wasting your own time. If you're not going to be comfortable doing that, don't do that. Wait. Then you, you need to find what type of project, whether that's a, a renovation and, and add one. If you're no good at renovations, you've never done them, you hate them, you've got no skills, you don't, you don't want to go through the process of project managing, don't do one. Then it's a, it has to be a knock, knock down and, and, and build. Um, I just did a renovation at home, Troy, and it just reminded me again why I don't want to do that uh, <laughs> renovate the, and keep the, strategy. Yeah, the, like the, just start from scratch. The, the live someone in else re- to do everything. The live better. in and renovate, that's a completely different strategy <laughs> altogether, which uh, is a sign of insanity I found because I've done it myself. And um, yeah, each time each time I do something, even a, like a, not a full renovation, each time I just go, I should know better. But anyway, that's an entirely different story. Um, but, but finding what's the perfect site for you um, obviously needs to fit in the, the financial, what, what, what you're able to do financially, but also what you might mentally be able to do financially. The bank might lend you a million bucks, but if you know anything over 500000 means you don't sleep at night, don't do that. You know, stick to the, the lower one, even just to start with, because once you um, get started, as I did, uh, I'm sure everyone else is the same, you get started, you go, wow, it's a bit easier than I thought it was going to be. Then you go and do a bigger one if that's what you like. 
Yeah, well, I had moments along the way in my first project where I certainly didn't think it was easier than I thought it was going to be, but we got there in the end, didn't well, we? Well, you did take on a, a very big bite for your, for your first go, and it, it didn't like, you know, take a little nibble of the pie to see if it was too hot. You uh, took an enormous bite, and... Um, well, that was only because the pie that got served up to me was a lot bigger than what I ever intended on ordering. But yes, uh, you, you, I've already covered that story uh, many <laughs> times on the podcast. But anyway, we got through it with your help. So um, I'm going to come back to the training bit uh, in a little bit. But I think the latest project you've finished is a seven-unit site. Close, eight. Eight. There you go. So you've wrapped that one up and now you move on to the next one. So are you oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said the largest one. Sorry. The, oh, the latest, latest is a seven, yes. So that one's all done and dusted. Yes. Um, and so are you now at the point where you're doing multiple projects together? Or are you uh, finishing one, moving on to the next one, slight overlap? How's it work now? Oh, over the last few years, probably probably both of those options. Yeah. Um, there was times where I was doing multiple multiple ones um, and then also individual ones a lot of it's to do with timing uh, timing in my personal life um, timing with the market whereas um, a few years ago I separated from my daughter's mother um, and from that point on had a lot of time with, um, needed for the kids and at that time had four projects on the go at various stages while that was quite easily manageable um, it wasn't as a you know as a single dad so um, doing just what needed to be done business wise uh, to en- enable the kids not to um, go through anything more than what they you know was was absolute essential for them to go through to um, under the circumstances meant that um, the business focus wasn't there combined with the fact that the market was pretty warm, whereas in the past I'd have agents ringing me up saying, I've got this site, I've got that site. Um, I wasn't spending the time looking for those sites and the market wasn't handing them on a platter to me either. So that led to a a reduction of the amount of projects that I was doing. So um, now the, the, the circumstances have changed a little bit with the kids the market's starting to, to turn. Properties are starting to come on the market. Just on a, um, just building a foundation now to to greatly increase again. It's um, it, it's funny. A lot of people will say when the market's hot, oh, gee, it must be a great time to be a developer. It's actually the opposite because while the prices might be moving up on what you're selling, they're moving up extraordinarily on what you're buying. And people are paying more than it's possible to, to be profitable, which while it's unfortunate for them that they might lose money or gee, lose their house maybe even, um, it's unfortunate for them, but it's also unfortunate for yourself because if they're buying all these at overpriced, um, we can't buy. It's, it's a lot harder to buy. And even for the one that comes on the market that one of these people who are making mistakes aren't buying, the vendors have expectations because the one down the road just like theirs sold for a million bucks and mine must be worth a million where realistically it's only worth 700 800 whatever the case may be and that's all i can afford to pay for it there's the expectations and that might sit there on the market for six or 12 months waiting for that price to come up and it's not going to get there but it still leaves that on that price and then the next person comes along with a similar house to sell it and you're going well that guy's selling it for a hundred for a million so mine must be worth about the same so it takes a while for the reality to move back into the market and i think we're just on the cusp of that now and so what are the things that you focus on most now for your projects? You've got quite a few projects under the belt. What two or three things do you most focus on now to ensure they succeed? 
Okay, there you go. Part one of my chat with Troy Harris. I certainly enjoyed the trip down memory lane with him and hoped you picked up some gems along the way. Make sure to tune into part two to catch the rest of the conversation. Here are three things I took out of my discussion with Troy. One, your mindset helps decide your life. I know people keep banging on about having the right mindset, and it is almost a cliche, but it is actually true. We live in the world of our own making, and the funny thing is, is that you can create the life and world that you want. Not just by thinking about it, but working on it. The key is deciding what you want and then putting in place a plan to get there, and importantly, getting help along the way from people who have done it or know how to guide you. When you decide that nothing will stand in your way, then you just get on with it. Your brain has the amazing capacity to believe or be programmed, and coupled with your heart slash desire, you can achieve incredible things. So if you are sitting there thinking about all the reasons why you can't do something, try flipping it around and asking about all the ways that you can. Two, early success can be a curse. I have been down this path before, Sometimes having early success can lead you to be complacent about what you need to do to continue being successful. Troy talked about how he did well out of his first renovation, and he thought it was because of everything he did. Whereas, he found a buyer willing to pay a great price for his homestead, which was a little unique. But when he did something more conventional, he came up against the weight of the market. I found that with my second project. I thought that since council supported, in fact pushed, for a more dense project on my first time, they would do the same on my next project, but they didn't, and it was a very costly lesson. Three, identify your perfect site. This is a good tip from Troy. Once you identify your perfect site, it narrows your search parameters and focuses your effort. You are less likely to go down rabbit holes chasing potential development sites of all shapes, sizes, and locations. It also allows you to be clear with agents about what you are looking for so they can help find it. Troy gave a few things you can consider to identify your perfect site. The location, the project type, and the likely cost. As Troy advised, start off doing something you are comfortable with so that you can sleep at night. Obviously, I was daydreaming when Troy had that conversation with me all those years ago. All right, if you enjoyed that conversation with Troy, then why not delve into the archives and take a listen to episode 13, where I speak with developer Matt Jones about how he went from being a postie to becoming a property entrepreneur. Matt had some great advice on how you can achieve phenomenal results. Do something every day that's going to take you closer to who and what you want to be. If that's a property developer, then doing those, those things to get you there. And then if you can do that, that consistently over, say, six months or a year, it's just phenomenal how much you can achieve. I'm sure you will enjoy that chat with Matt, so go back and take a listen to him in episode 13. Don't forget to email me if you are interested in learning how to become a property developer, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and check out my Instagram and Facebook pages for my latest developing videos, photos, and news at Property Developer Podcast. You can also find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So, until next time, may you start to create the life of your dreams. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. 
For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com. Thank you.